It is, as I've said before, an honor to be here uh, with all of the people here. Uh, it's amazing how no matter where we go, we find some people that we've known in some other capacity. So we've been blessed to know that and hope to include you in those friendships that are yet to come as well. Uh, I was reminded that when, I, when it comes to time, I remember there were these uh, fourth graders that were asked to write a short synopsis on their heroes and uh, in a week they came back, and young Billy said, my hero was George Washington. He was the first president of the United States. He did all these great things, and uh, it just made that, that United States what it was in its time. And someone else said, well, you know, I think my favorite person was really uh, uh, Abraham Lincoln. And they said, well, he emancipated, you know, he freed the slaves and did all these great things in bringing the union together. And finally, this little girl, Sally, stands up. She says, my favorite speaker was Socrates. He talked so much, and then they killed him. So I'm afraid I don't want to be in that Socrates station today, though I am not certain that that might not be the case in time. God is truly blessed. One of the, one of the things that happen at my age is that I need a large print Bible, and I normally travel with one, but it weighs the same as a Volkswagen. So I'm trying to use an iPad, so if I get misplacing something, I'd like to think it was just because of this and not just because I'm losing what little faculties I have, which is, that does happen sometimes. What I really wanted to challenge us tonight was, is that as we look at the unreached of our world, one of the things that the world is looking for us is to see how we treat one another. One of the things that I am really excited about and have been in many places where I've ministered, and my two pastorates were both in Southern California, and in my second one, which was all of the 90s, I found that there was a lot of ways in which churches could get together and do things. But I also found there were some churches that said, nah, I really don't want to be a part of that group because they don't all believe the same thing I do. Uh, and uh, that's really a challenge. Now, there are some belief systems that we would truly say are outside the realm of biblical accuracy. We'd all have to understand that. But within the, the pale of Christianity and Orthodox and Evangelicalism, it's exciting to see that three, three churches have put aside some little differences that may have been there and said, we want to focus on something together. And that's the challenge I want us to look at tonight as well. So we're going to be looking at some things. What I want us to look at tonight is what we call prayers. Prayers are an amazing thing. We said we were heard last, we were challenged last night that prayer is what we ought to be about when we're praying for the Lord of the harvest to send those workers into the harvest because the, the harvest is ripe unto ready and we're ready to go. And if we look at all the different parts of the world, we have to say that is still true. No matter where I go in the world, I'm amazed at how many believers there are, but how many other obstacles are still in the way. So we're going to look at this issue of prayer today. There's a prayer I'm reminded of. It's a children's prayer. Maybe you don't have it in your country, but we have it in ours. And it goes like this. Now I lay me down to sleep. I pray the Lord my soul to keep. Have you heard this one? All right. If I should die before I wake, I pray the Lord my soul to take. Wait a minute. If I should die before I wake, is that what we really want to be on the mind of our children as we're getting them off to lullaby land? This idea of, if I should die, gulp. But yet we've said it over and over. And this is a children's prayer. So to that I want to say, yikes. That's a tough gig to give a child. 
especially in the times of which we have things that are on television and in movies and in everywhere else, the things that children learn at school is enough to frighten any child, much less a parent. But yet, prayer is important for all of us. Something I discovered years ago, prayer is not giving God information that if we did not tell him, he would not know. Though we act that way, don't we? Lord, I can't pray about that. Boy, if you knew what was really on my heart, you'd know, well, I'm just gonna. But he said, no, I know what's on your heart. No, really, I mean, it's really bad. He wants to know what's on our heart. But we're not giving him new information. Do we somehow still have a concept that if we don't tell him, he's not gonna know? We are not trying to persuade him. We are giving him as a barometer of where we are. Prayer is really a way in which we look at ourselves of what's important. You know, what are our prayers like when we're 10 and 12 years old? You know, I want to I want to get through this class. I want to have a good summer vacation. I want I want to get to know that person, whatever it may be. Uh, the most time of prayer for me was right around 16. Am I going to get a driver's license or not? Am I going to be able to drive? And then the one that challenges all of us guys and gals: Is that girl going to like me? I wonder if she she look oh, look does she said, oh. and we're always kind of captivated by that. What we're finding out is that God knows all of this. They asked a group of first graders one time if God knew about computers, and almost all of them said, oh, no. that was God lived a long time ago. He wouldn't know anything about computers. Now, I'm not certain there are any people that know anything about computers either. That's why I have a Mac. I'll admit that. But the idea is, is that God is bigger than our thoughts, bigger than our concept of him, even bigger than our, our, our scope of looking at the world as it is. We have found in persecuted places in the world, sometimes the gospel flourishes because it doesn't have all that junk that we attach to it. They weren't worried about uh, whether they had the right this or that. They weren't worried about whether they're Someone asked, what's your church preference? And I said, red brick. <laughs> They're not concerned about that. They're just doing it. And now in China, we have missionaries there from B World, and they're finding out with the new facial recognition programs, they're finding out that you cannot meet anywhere in public without being seen by the government. So they're now breaking up large groups and making you meet in smaller groups. For some churches, that's not too far. But for other churches that are large, now we enjoy the fellowship and the joy of worship together. Isn't that something? To hear the singing last night and tonight, it was just, it just get right to you. And, uh, and, and, we, and you've all, if you've ever been to other countries to see them sing and to do that, it, it just exalts us. I've been in some churches in the States where everyone's singing, all 12 of them, <laughs> and there's nothing else going on. And it just seems like they just didn't turn the amp up high enough. But here, the amps don't need much to add. You people are singing your hearts to God, and it is amazing to see. But even when we're not allowed to gather together, there's a sense in which Jesus gave us some instructions about this concept of what we're to be about 
in the world. And we're going to look just at a section of what we will call Jesus' farewell prayer. We looked at last night a bit about, well, we need to pray the Lord of the harvest to do these things. Amen. Praise God. But he had some final words. But he, these final words were at the end of a discourse. Some people have called chapters 13 through 17 of John uh, the upper room discourse, which is kind of odd because in chapter 15, you're out in the vineyard. But we'd rather call it the last discourse. It's the last time Jesus is with his disciples, giving them instructions. But when he comes, after he gives them all those instructions of 13 through 16, he now gives what we should be calling and rightfully understanding the Lord's Prayer. Many people misconstrue the model prayer with the Lord's Prayer. This is his prayer. But it's one of, those, one of those things that Jesus has done often with his disciples. He prayed out loud. Why did he have to pray out loud? You can interact, sorry about that, I forgot to tell you. Why did he pray out loud? Did he think the Father wouldn't hear him unless he did it out loud? Hardly not. What? He wanted the disciples to hear it. Now, those disciples, we should not give them a hard time. We're not doing much better some days. They were what we would call thick as a brick. Even up until the last, you know, they're all, he's going, I'm going to go to the cross. And they're all like, who's going to be first in the kingdom? If that's not bad enough, two of the guys, their mother went to Jesus. As a guy, I'm thinking, oh, Lord, please. But yet, they just didn't get it yet. Because that's yet to come. But he wanted them to know this is it. So he did, does his prayer. And the first part of the prayer is an amazing part because the first part is his prayer about himself. He prays there in verse 1 through verse 5. He prays there about himself, that he might be lifted up and glorified and that all that is transpiring would be able to be on display. Because at the end of this chapter, going into chapter 18, he's going to share about his crucifixion that's coming up. He went there to, be, to go through that whole process. This is his last time he speaks publicly out loud so the disciples will hear him about what he has on his heart. Now, one of the amazing things is we just, at our church, just finished studying 2 Timothy and it's Paul's last letter to young Timothy of things that he wanted to leave with him as he was about to go to, to be put to death in that Roman prison during a second imprisonment. And he talks to him like a dad would talk to his son. His son in the faith, he tells him, I want you to, be, I want you to listen up. If you were on your deathbed, what would you want to share with your loved ones around you? Those are really important words. When I was at Schofield, I was part of a, 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 a class, Sunday school class called the Philathia class. And there was one of the men in there. He had a, a, a form of asthma and a heart problem. And he knew he was going to be dying within probably a week in the hospital. And he had like six children. And he asked each one of them to come into his room. And he asked them all the same question at first. Do you know and have you believed in Jesus Christ and have the gift of everlasting life? 
Now, he had been around those children, he'd been, but he wanted to ask each of them privately to ensure that. And then he shared with them something that was on his heart, which I don't know what it was, but I do know these things because I knew the man. When we have been with somebody in, their, in the hospital or somewhere else and, and they have the last words that they want to say, they pick, choose them wisely. Jesus is choosing these words wisely to tell the people where the disciples in particular, what he's about. So he shares with them at the very beginning there these things about himself as we go through, okay? He prays just before he goes to the crucifixion and he comes through there. He is now, in a sense, ministering like a high priest, He's going to pray for these people. He prays for himself, his disciples, and then us. And you need to remember this when you read John 17. Because if you put that second section as if he's talking to us, you get some real confusing things. Because he's telling his disciples certain things. But he's going to say, those that are going to believe because of you, these people need to know these things as well. So he shares with them. And the one thing he shares at the very beginning here is this idea of unity. Let's look at John 17, beginning there in verse 20. Remember, verses 1 to 5, he's talking about himself to the Father. And then verses 6 through 19, he's praying for those disciples that are with him. But in verse 20, he changes that now, and he says, I do not pray for these alone, Lord, these disciples, but these alone, but for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may be one as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may also be one in us, that the world may believe that you have sent me. That's quite a challenge, isn't it? It's also a tad confusing. Do we know how the triune Godhead cooperate together? Not a clue. It just says so. Almost every definition we have of the Trinity throughout all of history end up in one thing in common, all wrong. Because you cannot define the infinite with anything finite. We say, well, it's like the rope, three strands. Nope, that's not it. Like water that's ice, steam, or liquid, that's modalism. If it's like an egg, a white, a shell, and a yolk, doesn't work. All of them do not fit the definition or the example that's given us in here that Jesus Christ, the Father, and the Holy Spirit are one, yet three persons. I defy that. And as I was sharing with the group here Sunday, I shared with them, if you tell a five-year-old that Jesus exists in the Trinity, their response normally is, okay. Now, do you understand the enormity of Philippians 2, of he emptied himself, the kenosis? Do you understand how God is fully God? And the child goes, now you're just confusing me. Children can grasp these concepts, though the greatest theologians in the world have written volumes on it and still struggle with it. But he tells us here that the oneness that the Father and the Son have together, he says that's what we want with the body of Christ, the church. This is the beginning of that being worked out in your community. 
We should be in such a place that there should be probably 10 churches fitting together and finding great ways to show people that this is who we are because this is gonna make a difference. He prayed for the unity of all believers that they might be one as Jesus and the Father are one so that through that unity, the the world might know that Jesus really is the Son of God. The purpose statement statement of John's gospel in chapter 20, verse 30 and 31, you'll find it written there for us that he says, many are the signs that Jesus do in the presence of his disciples, but these are written so that you, the reader, might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing in him, you may have what? Life. He didn't say just the forgiveness of sin, though that's why he died, but as you might have the life that only God can give instead of the death that's gonna go on forever for those who never believe. That's the purpose of the Gospel of John. So if there's sufficient information so that the reader may know and believe, it ought to be enough. So he tells us here that this kind of picks up on the same thing. So he says that they might know that I am the Son of God, Jesus says. So, but that's the unity. How are they gonna know the message we give means anything? if we're back here fighting. No, 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 we're right, no, we're right, no, you're wrong, you're wrong. So we're going, no, but you lost people, if you come with us, you won't know either. That's not a lot of help. We can always say, oh, we're, all, we're all united and looking over there, but don't come in my parking lot. No, but we want that lost, the unreachable reach, we want them without everything coming, we want them to know Christ. Yet. I don't really like those other Christians. So what makes them, what makes the lost ever think they'll ever be liked if we don't have some kind of unity? This is an urgent prayer that Jesus gives. So they might know this in verses 20 to 26. This idea of unity comes from this concept here of a, uh, a state of oneness, being in harmony and accord. Um, Not in a divine way, but in a real way. How can a husband and a wife live together without some unity? Not uniformity, because some people try to make their spouse into what they wish they could be. But instead, this idea of a oneness, and the two shall become one flesh. Very early on in the text in Genesis, isn't it? And the two, a man shall leave his mother and father, shall cleave unto himself a wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Believe it or not, that was given before the fall. So you can't blame the fall. Ephesians tells us this idea of being of one accord in Acts 2, 1, the same thing. To be in agreement, to work with and together with that agreement. That's what the body of Christ ought to be. And if we're looking at the remote regions of the world, believe me, when you're in the Middle East or in China or in Myanmar or in any of these other countries, the Atlantic looks very much like a remote part of the world. Nassau looks like a dot on the map, though a very beautiful dot, I might add. Thank you. But it's this idea that he really wants us to be. What is unity? Unity, I'll tell you what it's not. This is an amazing thing. It is not simply agreeing to disagree. 
<laughs> well, we'll just agree to disagree. Now, the interesting thing, that used to be a, a definition of what we'd call pluralism. You know, we just agree to disagree. You know that today, the issue of tolerance and all these other things that are being introduced against Christianity have nothing to do with either one of those things. They want you now to not just agree with them, but to participate in those things. And that's part of what you're going to have a conference on tomorrow and other times as well. This postmodernism is changing definitions. But we cannot just say, we have unity because you agree not to disagree. How much, then, what do you, then what do you really teach on? Well, we can't teach on that because we don't all agree on that one. Well, we can't, oh, we don't, well, no, don't, don't go there either. What about, oh, no, you don't even want to touch that one. When I was teaching this last time in the Middle East, I have these two students, one from Sudan, a young lady whose husband is a medical doctor in Sudan, and I have a gentleman from South Sudan. And when I first met him, he was talking in class, and, and I, I, we're interacting on this course in, in uh, Paul's letters. And, and I asked him something, and he leaned forward and, rah, 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 rah. and I go, my goodness, I upset him. So I asked my translator, I go, oh, no, he talks away to everybody. He was a detective in South Sudan. So the, these, the one from Sudan and South got into a conversation in the back of the room about a particular topic. I'll even tell you the topic. What are women allowed to do in the church? Now, I'm in the Middle East. <laughs> I wasn't in Saudi Arabia, thank you very much. So we're going through this, and they're both very adamant about it. So I'm asking my translator, young, it was Yazan, I think it was then, and he says, don't worry, it'll work out. You know, and they, they, we all ride home on the same bus, we all love each other, but in these discussions, it was going at it there. And I've had, not debates, but conversations and things with people of different theologies within Christianity, and most of the time, we go away somewhat not really satisfied we've convinced the other person, but we don't hate each other. But yet nowadays, we're getting to that place, and unfortunately, it's infiltrating the church. And if we go out and say, I want to share the gospel, but all they see is that, that cloud of dirt behind us of everybody yelling at each other, it's not going to get us much mileage out of that. It's going to have to be the other way around. So we also know that it's not simply of peace through compromise. World War II, England had a famous politician who says, I can, I can appease that guy in Germany if you'll just let me. What was his name? Chamberlain. Peace through compromise, that's gonna work. Did it work then? <laughs> no. Has it worked hardly anywhere? Hardly at all. But yet that seems to be, well, if I just give up mine, I have some good friends on two sides of a big theological debate. And one side says, I'll tell you what, we'll each give up a little bit and move toward the middle. A good friend of mine represents a side that I'm more familiar with, or at least I more agree with. And so he says, okay, what we'll do is we'll, we'll change this, this, and this. Okay, now your turn. And the other side says, thank you. No, okay, so I'll move a little bit closer. And the other side says, thank you. It doesn't work this way. Compromise doesn't work in order to bring peace. 
There has to be some basis. And probably the one thing we ought to be striving toward is that idea that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone. There's no other way. We, We have to find that we agree. Well, I don't like the way you say that. Well, I probably have a lot of things. You probably don't like the way I say something. Well, my wife still loves me. And I'm happy for that. But this whole idea of telling us peace of compromise. Another one that's also done there, ignoring that which we differ about. We just won't talk about it. Now, I have a very close friend. He and I went through Bible college. In fact, the first day of Bible college, uh, my wife dropped me off at the front door, and his, his wife dropped him off the front door. We went through the front doors together. We've been best friends ever since. That was in, I got back from Vietnam in 72, so that's when we went through those front doors together. Still a great friend. There are a couple of issues which he and I disagree. And he and I can talk about it all day long, but if his wife hears us talking about it, she's very defensive for him. You're just attacking my husband. No, John and I have always talked this way for many, many years. But this idea of ignoring things, that it will go away. Have you ever had anything that if you ignored, they go away? It doesn't work that way. So this idea, the other one is, uh, is not, it's simply tolerating one another. I just tolerate you. Resentments will rise up over time. Well, I can live with that. I can live, I, that won't bother me. Wait a minute, it does bother me. And it comes up at the most inopportune time. At least for me it does. Finally, the other way that doesn't bring unity is Always getting your way. I have a good friend. Uh, he and I went through seminary together and, and taught at the same uh, university. I was one of the deans and he was new faculty. His wife is called the one who must be obeyed. You know, you think I'm kidding. I am not kidding. My son was discipled by my good friend. And as he, my son called one day and he said, is, 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 is this Gary there? And she goes, who? And she, he says, well, is Gary there? You mean doctor? So and he goes, well, I guess so. <laughs> so I visit with him. Now, he can't pull that with me because I got mine a couple years before he got his. But I come there, and so all of a sudden he comes out the front door, and I says, oh, okay. He says, oh, we can't go inside. Oh, is she cleaning? No, she just says we can't go inside. <laughs> so we're standing on this little bitty sidewalk outside of his house because she must be obeyed. <laughs> when their son grew up and left home, the last thing he told his father as he was leaving is, Dad, I get to leave. You have to stay. <laughs> There are some people that, of course, will have unity if I always get my way. That doesn't work either in the body of Christ. Yet we find it often given there for us as such. What is it? What then is striving for unity that we should have? First thing we have to do is realize this is what Jesus desires. This is what he prayed out loud. Not telling the Father something the Father didn't know but so that they see that it's that important because how effective was their listening skills in in their past? They were like, yeah, uh uh-huh, uh-huh. What'd he say? Oh, I thought he said this. And they really didn't get it very often. 
But one of the great things is, is that the disciples did finally get it. And when was that? Do you remember? On the day of Pentecost. Up until that time. So when Jesus was crucified, where did the disciples go? We're going fishing. Dude, we're going fishing. They're not going to find us out there. They're not even going to look for us out there. So they go fishing. So then they find out that uh, he's going to have to teach them how to fish even. But the whole concept is, but on the day of Pentecost, something happens to these men. They were all together in one place, in one accord, and the Holy Spirit descended. And it was bam! From that point on, those men stood up for Christ. To death! But before then, it was like, oh, no, not me. Oh, no. You know, I've always got a backup plan. In this one here, he tells us that this is his prayer. This is what he desires. He desired unity, but he never compromised truth. Truth is important. That's what Paul said to Timothy in his last letter. You've got to stand firm on the truth. And the amazing thing about the church at Ephesus is this. We have more written on that one church than we do of any other church in the entire New Testament. You find the church at Ephesus mentioned in the book of Acts, obviously. You find it mentioned in the book of Ephesians that Paul writes to the church there. You find it mentioned in 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy, because Timothy is the pastor as of that church, a leading elder, leader of that church at Ephesus. But we find it mentioned one last time. Where was that? Revelation. And all the way through those other ones, it's saying, hold fast, get the truth, get the truth. You come to Revelation, what does he say? You held the truth. But. (laughs) But. Then what did he say? You left your first love. They, they, they were so right that they let, lost the passion for Jesus Christ. They lose the passion. I have friends, I tell people I have a lot of friends that are in two groups, boneheads and eggheads. I got a lot of eggheads. You know, we get, there's a group of us that get together every November in various parts of the world. We get together probably about 2,000 to 2,500 of us called Evangelical Theological Society. We get together and we discuss things. We present papers. We are smart people. But I have others that don't want to study because it will just confuse them. The church at Ephesus learned a great lesson, but they lost something in the process. This unity is a way in which truth is never compromised, We just don't get our way, but where truth is actually lived out in a way that honors people and wants them to come into a relationship to Jesus Christ more than they want to be right. Late in our marriage, my wife and I this year have been married 50 years. But up until... (laughs) Don't applaud yet. (laughs) I have to get to December to get to that 50. But what we found out was, through a a good friend and counselor, he told us probably after about 30-something years of marriage, where was he early on? 
that we were very competitive. We want to be right. There are times we have arguments of which we really are not really sure of what started it. But we are both at 30 decibels above deafening, but both demanding to be right. We were firstborn, yeah. I tried that, didn't work. But you see, the body of Christ needs to know that we can get through difficulties. Because at the heart of this marriage, we are committed to death for each other. The body of Christ has the same commitment, even though we may not just worship at all of our voices, we may even loudly disagree. But overall, we never want to compromise the basics of truth. Our world is looking to compromise us and catch us in a compromise. If we are going to reach the world, how would these other unreached people in all these other countries trust us with a message that doesn't seem to have any effect on us? That's a tough gig to follow. Yet he tells us there, we're never to compromise truth. Philippians 2.5 Who are we here to please? It's a great question, isn't it? We need to be striving. We need to be working toward it. I I work with leaders sometimes, and one of the things I say is that I I don't want to make any decision until I can make the right decision. I tell them, make decisions and just improve your average, Because if you wait till you make the perfect decision, you probably won't make any decision at all. In indecisiveness and other things can absolutely paralyze groups and leaders beyond our comprehension. I just tell them, just do better. Learn from it. But if you're afraid, and I know many young men are just beginning to get in leadership positions, and they just cannot make a decision. Because, well, what if, if I do this? This person will hate me. Well, then this person will. And this person, I go, you got to make a decision. You got to do what's right. Even though it ends up being wrong, you're going to learn from it. So we're not here to please ourselves. We're here to please there. So not only are we to, to do it because he desires it. Secondly, he tells us here that he says that we are to respect God's word. Because he repeats it again and again throughout the New Testament. Speak the same thing, he writes to the Corinthians. Speak the same thing. John 17, 17 is exactly what he was saying here. Sanctify them by truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I've sent them into the world. Thy word is truth. If you don't know your Bible, you need to. Well, I I have a friend who got a a PhD in New Testament studies at Dallas Seminary. After he graduated, he shared with me, what we did through all of those years was study what other people said about the New Testament. At our school, Rocky Mountain Seminary and Rocky Mountain Bible College, we require original language studies so they can know what it says. One of my professors came to me and says, why do we need to teach them Greek and Hebrew and the cognate languages? Because we all can get logos or Bible works. Well, you can't get Bible works now, unfortunately, uh, or accordance. Those are going to tell us. The difficulty you will find in those is that if you quote Kittle, 
know that the title of that series is a theological dictionary of the New Testament. It has a theology it's trying to tell you. So the best thing you can do, we teach our students how to not only translate and all the rest, but to do what we call synchronic word study. Study all the occurrences of that word in the New Testament. And you determine how, how, how wide a width it has. Give you an example. The word for saved, sozo and soteria. Almost everybody that reads that in the English or in their language, it says that justification, you've been justified. Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved in Romans 10, right? Who's he talking to? It's a quote from the Old Testament of the people of Israel that were under discipline, and it said, if you will call upon him, he will deliver you. But they were already his people. So if we use it in the wrong way, for the wrong reason, no wonder it has no power. Yet, we teach them that this idea of what God's word tells us, because his word is truth. Psalm 119 is a great, if you will, definitions of what truth is, what the scriptures are in all of those sections of the longest psalm. It has to be an objective standard for unity. It has to be objective. It can't be subject, well, just whatever we think about this week. Is the gospel message to be compromised? I don't think so. Well, you know, if I tell them that without this they will perish, John 3.16, that might hurt their feelings. Well, we certainly wouldn't want to do that. But the greatest message there is that the way in which God loved was that he gave his only son, his unique priority, so that we might have life. It has to be there. So not only we're finding out the striving for unity, we need also a proper attitude. Boy, I'm just amazed at this attitude. Yes, I love Jesus, so what? Oh, okay, no problem there. When we were young men in the Navy, we had a Bible study group. We were part of the Navigators. I don't, you probably never heard of them much, but we used to call them the Navigator Never Daters. You know, we were all single men, and you know, and they were like, we're serving God. <laughs> We'd go on these backpack trips up Yosemite, way back in there for, for a week at a time, and all these places, and it was like, we love Lord, yes, sir. And we were just waiting for people to come on the path so we could just outshout them for Jesus. Turn or burn. We were Elijah's. <laughs> Hopefully, we've tempered a bit. And one of my good friends there, he, he came to me one time, he says, see Bill over there? He gave up his fiance for the Lord. You ought to think about not marrying that girl that you're dating. So luckily, Shan won out. Now, years later, Mike called me. He wanted to see if he could. He didn't know. He didn't remember who I was, and he was asking if he could apply for a teaching position, a professorship. And I said, well, tell you the truth, you don't have the qualifications, but I appreciate it. And he told me his name. And I said, well, did you ever go to Moody? Oh, yeah, I went to Moody. I said, were you ever in VA-97, the Warhawks aboard the Enterprise in Vietnam? I was. <laughs> I still told him who I was, and he still didn't remember, and then later on he did. One of the great things, he's married, has two or three grown daughters. He got married. It wasn't just for never. But this idea, we need an attitude of unity, and it breeds unity. 
What I've experienced last night and tonight is an amazing attitude of unity. This is great. I pray that it doesn't stop. I don't mean that we all combine to one because I had a young friend who, young one of my men who was graduating, he says, we wanted, we wanted to bring, get all the youth of the community together. Everybody gives up their youth program for this one big program. I said, where's it gonna meet at our church? So I'm thinking, now you've got to sell this to every other youth pastor in the community, right? Oh yeah, but we're doing it for Jesus. I go, that's probably not going to work. But this attitude there, he tells us there in Ephesians that, but he also says it's to be an attitude of lowliness. This idea of lowliness is especially found in the great chapter of Philippians 2 of that part that Jesus himself made of himself of no reputation. One of the things that most of us in our world today want a really great reputation. That's the smartest guy we ever knew. Boy, does he know Jesus. He says, no, no reputation. It was as if the king of kings was now in the form of a pauper. And he didn't go around, I don't know, don't let the clothes fool you. I'm really God. <laughs> he didn't do that. But he did it and he submitted and Paul says to the Philippians, he says, he submitted clear until the time he died. I got to tell you, when they put their hands on me and I'm there, I'm going, don't touch me, guys, you're dead. <laughs> but he submitted to it. That's a lowliness of spirit that is rare in our day. He tells us here, we are also to have a sense of gentleness. One thing I've always appreciated about Rob and Beth is that they have a spirit of gentleness. You know, and I think that's what we have in some ways, a gentleness. They're not just, they really care. And I think that's what all of us ought to be about as gentleness. And here's the one that's the hardest for me, long-suffering. My wife has this down really well. She lives with me. <laughs> I taught her that. No, really. She learned how to be that from me. And you're saying you should not be proud of that. <laughs> and you're probably right. But he tells us we're to have this also, to have a proper attitude. He's going to tell us here that he says that we are to have an attitude of love, of caring. You met people who really love people? They're amazing to be around. I don't care what you're doing. It just exudes from them. You ever met somebody who's really hateful all the time? Whoa. You know, what'd you drink vinegar for breakfast? Eesh. Vinegar in your cornflakes? Eesh. Doesn't sound good. But he says we're to have an attitude. We're also to have an attitude of respect. We're to respect one another. One of the things we see often is that some people don't respect themselves. And that's true. One of the things we have to teach our young adults is to have respect for each other and for themselves. You know, it's a tough world. I mean, everything is pulling at our kids today. I don't care what it is, it's coming at them. Now, the first time we visited and taught in Trinidad, Tobago, people were so, so, and the next time we came, they had something brought to the island that they never had before, cable US television. And it for $10 a month, you got Every, every channel. Did I say every? 
every. And it was beginning, just within a year, it was beginning to erode the very fabric of people. And yet, this idea of respect can be lost very easily. We're also to find that we are allowed for differences. You know, um, if you want somebody that's the same, that would be kind of monotonous. If we all did the same things. One of the great things that my wife and I have loved about the world in which we find ourselves is diversity. You're all different. And you learn to love people of different heights, width. I guess I shouldn't have said width. As I told them Sunday, as I told them Sunday, I am in shape. Round is a shape. I just need to be taller. But differences are what makes it wonderful. All different people in all different places. And you know what's, what's helped me is, oddly enough, is Facebook. I Facebook with so many people that I've met in the world. I have, you know, I've, I've reached the limit on there of people that I can have on there. And there's a few I may be trading off, but, you know. but it's just such a great way to find out what's happening in their lives as well. But also we find in James this idea of willing to yield, we got to be able to willing to yield. We're also, in a sense, of we ought to be not just striving for it, but strive for unity is what it ought to be. In Ephesians, it says we are to be endeavoring this idea of, of action. It's not going to passively happen. We're all going to sit here until we all come to the unity of the faith. Let's all hum together. Hum. Probably won't happen. But when it first starts, it's going to be a little, ooh, I don't know, a little more room here. When I was pastoring this last time, one of the, uh, one of the men that worked up in the sound booth, because it was up there as well, we had, a big, we had a big full basketball court in our church. I kept thinking, I'm going to get that three-pointer and get me one of these days, because it's right above me. And one of the men up there came to me and says, you're not going to believe this, but Sunday, somebody came in, a, a visitor came in and tried to sit down, and another older family came in and said, That's our, those are our chairs. Those are ours. And they're like, what? And I was, I was appalled. But there are some people that are like that. Excuse me, that's my spot. I love Jesus, but I really like this spot. That's not working together. So we're also to be a sense of, of perfectly joined together is what Paul describes it as. We're going to be a part. When you, we were sharing today about some of the archaeological digs. You go in the rabbi's tunnel along the western wall at the Temple Mount. You go down there and the, the, origin, the, the, the base stones for the Solomonic Temple are about four or five feet tall, six to seven feet deep, and 35 feet long each. And you cannot put paper in the joints between those. Man, they knew how to make something precise. And when I go to these different digs in all these different parts of the world, you can see the, the newer parts of it were sloppier and sloppier and sloppier. And we went to the one place where they have t uh, temples and mosques at the same 8th century at St. Stephen's. And yet, 
when they're built, they're there. When they renewed them, they're a little more sloppy. And by the time you get to the stuff that's there now, they're just stacking rocks. But it was that way. We're to be joined together. Philippians says that we are to be this idea of like-minded, thinking alike. Yeah, that's what, yeah, we ought to reach our community. Yeah, we ought to reach the world. And all of a sudden, we begin to think that way as well. Concluding there of the same love and brotherly love, but also of one accord, Join together. Husbands and wives are joined together. And what do we say to one? And let no man do what? Put it asunder. Because a new couple, everything's going to come at them to disjoin them, if you will. And that's not the way it's supposed to be. This idea here is that we are to look at the striving for unity to deal with division as it may come up. Sometimes to preserve unity, sin, division, immorality, and false teaching must be dealt with. One of the thing, two things are weak in most churches in our world. They don't understand spiritual gift, however every part is supposed to be doing something. And secondly, they don't know how to deal with church discipline. We'll just, we'll just talk about them for a week. <laughs> And hopefully they'll get, they'll get the message. Have we ever gotten, have you or I ever gotten the message when someone just whispers about it? I'm like those disciples. Lord, I need you to tell me about 12 times. Then I might even think I'm getting close. Well, this idea here, it has to be dealt with in the way in which we give us there. We find these things in Romans 16, 1 Timothy 6, and Titus 3. Clearly there as such. So we also know the key ingredient for all of these things of unity is prayer. Bathed in prayer. I was coming, uh, a group of us pastors met one time and in this name of a, of a famous televangelist who, um, won't tell you his name, but um, he was teaching some false things. And so somebody brought it up and I said, you know, I gotta tell you, this guy is teaching this, this, and this. So as I'm leaving, this young man comes after me. He says, Dr. Lewis, he said, I, you seem to understand a lot about what that guy teaches. I'm like, unfortunately, I do. And he goes, well, then you should be a good one to pray for him then, wouldn't you? Prayer was not on my mind. <laughs> That's not what I wanted to do. But he was absolutely correct. If I knew that much about his bad teaching... I, more than others, ought to be able to really pray for him specifically. I'm thinking more of the imprecatory psalms. <laughs> you know what that is. Look it up. But that's not what this young man meant, and he was absolutely correct. Always pray for that which is good, including unity. James tells us that, as well as in Philippians some great things for us here. So I just want us to, to consider this. This idea of unity is something that, we're, we're, that God says, that's what he prayed for. And if it's that important that it's recorded, not just for those disciples to hear, but it will be recorded so that we might understand what's a passion on his heart. What did he think a lot about? That was what it was. How do we become a people who really care about the lost because we care about one another. Someone once said, 
the reason your church may be small, they don't know how to deal with one another, and why would we throw a new one in there? I went, I wish you wouldn't have said that. Or another one said, well, why are you always wanting to grow when you can't take care of what's there? I was not helpful either. Truthful. It's like telling your two children, I'm going to love and care for you as soon as we have four. (laughs) No, really, I will. I mean, you know, we're not complete yet. You know, we've got one of each, and, you know, it's a toss-up for the next two or more. That's not what God wants. He wants to care for those that are there. But the more we show care for one another, the more the world wants to know how can they do that. Then the message we give to our world, the lost, the unreached, reachables, will be there. One of the things we're discovering with B World and other mission agencies is, is that we're now looking at, instead of transporting people thousands of miles away, find the nearest group of Christians to that group geographically and equip them and send them in. We're now working in Myanmar because it's, it has adjacent nations all around them. They can get access to places into China, into these other countries that we can't get into some days. So we're equipping them to go into those, and it's just a short distance. I've flown in those little two-hour planes, and we did make it. But it's just amazing what God's plans can be done. So I just want to challenge all of us to look at this idea of unity and be about the Lord's business. It was important enough for him to pray. It's important of us to listen. But more than that, to begin to change our hearts, our attitudes. So when we have a clear, simple message of life, they will listen. Let's pray. Father, we give you thanks today that your word never returns void, that unity is that which you have prayed for. In some of the epistles, Paul has given us that we maintain the unity of the faith, which we ought to do. Yet, Lord, when we're talking about reaching the unreached, maybe we have made their distance further because of our own attitudes when their reachableness could be changed if we showed them a sense of unity among us who already claim the name of Jesus Christ. The giver of life, the sustainer of life, and the one whom we will spend all the rest of eternity in the future with in a fellowship. So we might as well get along here because we're going to spend a long time together there. We thank you for that in Christ's name. Amen.